Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 83 of the Double Density Podcast with your hosts, Brian Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, Angelo, this episode, we are not alone. We have the immense honor of being joined by Casey Liss for what I feel will be uh, like a freewheeling discussion on a number of topics, both tech and paranormal. So those who aren't familiar with Casey, and shame on you, firstly, uh, I'm going to give you a quick rundown, partially snatched from his website, CaseyList.com. So Casey <laughs> is a podcaster, video producer, writer, and developer living and working in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. You can hear him co hosting the Accidental Tech Podcast alongside Mark Arment and John Syracuse, who, and they just celebrated the 300th episode, which we'll be touching on uh, in a bit. And uh, Casey also goes analog with Mike Hurley. You can also catch Casey on YouTube on his channel, Casey on Cars, where each of his videos takes us for a spin, pun intended, on a brand new ride. So greetings and welcome to Double Density, Casey. Hello. You know, when you said that you weren't alone, I wondered if we were jumping directly into the paranormal section of the podcast, <laughs> and I started looking around very, very concerned. But, but no, it's the it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for having me. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so, I feel like Angelo firstly has like a bone to pick, so uh, and also <laughs> sort of I do too, I guess, on the the point of bagels. Um, so, Angela and I are native Montrealers, and you uh, feel a certain way about bagels. So, there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage in this topic. So. Ever since I became friendly with Rene Ritchie, um, he has been, uh, he's made it his personal mission to get me to believe that Montreal bagels are better than New York style bagels. And that's a really unfortunate position to take because Rene is wrong and New York bagels <laughs> are better than Montreal bagels. Uh, but that being said, in 2013, Teen, I believe it was, I did make a trip to Montreal for Singleton, which was run by another friend of ours, uh, a guy English, and and actually a couple friends of his as well. And and I have experienced Montreal bagels. I've I've experienced them only once, and it was many years ago. And as I was saying to you guys privately before we started recording, my my position on this is actually more nuanced than I, than I let lead on uh, when I get in these uh, humorous fights, or at least I think they're humorous online, <laughs> but um, we have to understand that I'm coming from this from with, with, like I said, a lot of baggage. So I grew up at least in part in New York state. Uh, my dad is of Jewish heritage. He was a practicing Jew up until around the time that he was an adult and then kind of eschewed all of that. But um, at least to me, in my personal opinion, um, bagels are, uh, or at least in America and in New York, are kind of a product of the Jewish community. And although I don't particularly identify with Judaism as a religion, I do identify with it to some degree as kind of a race. And and I'm not looking to get into a philosophical discussion about that. But I, I just say that to, 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 to indicate to you that bagels are are kind of an important thing to me from a heritage perspective. And I think that's probably true for you guys as well, as much as I give you crap about it. And and so to me, the the quintessential bagel is the new or is the bagel from the New York area. Now I'm not a hard line kind of guy that it has to be from New York City and it has to have New York water, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, here in Richmond, Virginia, which is a solid, you know, 400 miles from New York, you can actually get a pretty good interpretation of a New York bagel. I mean, it's not quite as good as New York, but it is definitely reasonable. And in fact, in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I lived before here, which is an hour west of us, you can get an even better interpretation of a New York bagel. So I, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, if it's not from Manhattan, it's garbage. But I definitely think that you know the the really crispy exterior, not too sweet, kind of kind of uh, I don't know how to describe a New York bagel, but but 
it, it's it's not the same as Montreal, and in much the same way that I that I jokingly take a hardline stance that all pizza should be folded, and if you're having something <laughs> like Chicago, where you know where you're having effectively a pizza casserole, um, as it turns out, Chicago deep dish pizza is friggin' delicious. It's not my canonical. It does not agree with my canonical view of pizza. But it is delicious. And similarly, the one Montreal bagel I had five years ago in Montreal at the hotel that Singleton was at, although I believe it did get imported from one of the like two or three fancy places. I see you have a cocky link here that mentions Saint something or other. Saint um, Theater. Th- yeah, thank you. And I wouldn't have even tried to pronounce that. So I'm glad you stepped in. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, uh, it, I, I'd, it wasn't, you know, cooked on site, but it, it came from one of the like blessed bagel shops as far as I understood things anyway. And truth be told, it was delicious. It was really good. And I and I like the fact that if I'm not mistaken, Montreal is Montrealers. Mon- my, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Montrealers agree that like locks are a good thing to put on bagel. Cream cheese, I think we can agree, is a great thing to put on bagels. Yep. I personally don't don't favor capers, but I know that's a bit divisive. Some people do, some people don't. I don't care for capers. Uh, See, so there you go. But I, I, I am happy to toe the New York line and get into fisticuffs with the two of you about this. But <laughs> truth be told, I actually do think that Montreal bagels are quite tasty. They just don't agree with what I perceive to be the canonical bagel. So two questions then. Um, firstly, do you subscribe to the idea that the bagel uh, characteristics are made mostly due to uh, how the water is treated locally? <sighs> Yes, that's, but that's the I, big thing I've heard. Yeah, I, I do. But I do out of I don't want to say superstition because with you two, that's loaded. But, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I guess because I have no better way to describe it. Like, why does New York pizza take taste better than any other pizza on the planet? Why do New York bagels taste better than any other bagels on the planet? With respect, uh, it's because I, I shrug, I guess, you know, I, is it water? Maybe. Is it the preparation technique? Maybe. Is it probably a combination of all the above? Yeah, probably. Uh, and that, and I think to some degree, that's why it's hard to get what I consider to be a truly and utterly authentic bagel outside of New York. And again, like I said, you can get 95% of the way there in my personal opinion here in Virginia, but you can't quite get all the way. And I don't know if that's technique or if it's water or both, but I don't know. I I, I like to think it's water just because that's something that you can't really explain and you can't really argue. I, I, maybe, maybe that's the religious side of this coming in, you know, Oh, I don't know what this means. <laughs> well, it's because water, you know, it's just like, I don't know why we're here. Well, because God, you know? And so, um, and, and so because of that, I, I think water is the best answer I've come up with, but it's based on zero scientific facts whatsoever. Brian, you said you had another question. Oh, just more so, would you be able to drop a pin so that way we can do our come as your street fight about bagels in the near future? <laughs> you you want to, you want to figure out where we can meet halfway? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, we can do that. We can do that. I, Am I, I the snappers or the clappers? What was it from West Side Story? You know, oh, shoot. Have- I don't know. Isn't remember. the sharks and the yeah, something else? The sharks and jets or something? Yeah. 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 We'll we'll have to workshop this a little bit, but we'll we'll, okay. we'll figure something yeah. out. I feel like it it would be a fun border crossing. Like when when you know when you pull your passport and it's like purpose of your visit is per- very, very, very personal. And then you explain it <laughs> and then we get denied, right? So we're trading bagels. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I'm looking to get into a fight uh, about what? Uh, bagels. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think it's great that you you have a tech podcast and you spend so much time talking about bagels. You talked about bagels again in the, in episode 301, uh, uh, yeah. briefly you know, about cutting bagels. Yeah. yeah. It, it, the thing of it is, is that even if you're not like again, like uh, this is very loaded because I, I consider bagels in my personal headcanon to be 
inextricably linked with linked with the Jewish heritage and culture. But even if you're just a person who grew up in New York, like take John, for example, John Syracuse, one of my co-hosts who grew up in Long Island, uh, he has no particular affiliation with Judaism, but he has a strong affiliation with the New York area. And so because of that, he has strong opinions about bagels. Well, and John tends to have strong opinions about everything. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, and Marco is no different in that regard. And I'm probably not either. And so because of that, um, you know, I, I come at it from part New Yorker, part Jew. And the other two, John comes at it from native New Yorker. Marco comes at it from adopted New Yorker. And all three of us end up having extraordinarily strong opinions about bagels. Now, as it turns out, I have used meatways.com m-e-e-t-w-a-y-s.com and ramsey new jersey which is kind of a sort of a suburb of well a distant suburb of new york city is the halfway point between us by road so that is convenient because we'll be right by the bagels that you can test and and confirm (laughs) are better than your own and then that will make you even more ragey about the fact that you were wrong and new york bagels are in fact the best double density so speaking of accidental tech podcast you just celebrated your 300th episode i'm just kind of curious and i know this has been covered in other places but you know like in terms of like workflow and process, like what keeps you going 300 episodes in? Uh, having good co-hosts. And I don't mean that to be loaded at all. I mean, I, you guys obviously have a very good chemistry and I've listened to uh, you know one or two of your shows and it, it was immediately obvious that you do as well. But um, having good co-hosts who you enjoy speaking to, I think is number one and that you feel like you have some chemistry with. Um, I, I feel like the three of us are pretty good friends and have pretty good chemistry. And I think we're the kind of friends that we're similar enough that we can we can get along and have fun with each other, but different enough that we can kill each other and have fun with each other. And so <laughs> it's, you know, a little column A, a little column B. Um, in terms of workflow, it's not that terribly interesting, to be honest. We try to record uh, every Wednesday night at nine in the evening for the last like month. It's been a little bananas because of holidays and travel schedules and things of that nature. But generally speaking, we record every single week. Um as we discussed on episode 300, we do bend over backwards to make sure that all three of us will be there every single week. There's only been a couple of exceptions and they were deliberate. Um, we've never taken a week off as a unit. Uh, we've never missed a show for something like 296 weeks or something like that, because the first few were not every single week. The first two or three, we did like one a month or something like that. And then once we realized, no, this is a thing in 2013, since that moment that we decided, okay, this is a thing, we have had an episode released every single week for five years. And uh, it's it's something that I'm pretty proud of. And what keeps us going is, I think, just enjoying talking to my friends is number one. Number two is the listeners. Um, occasionally, you get some nasty feedback, but generally speaking, overwhelmingly, our listeners are amazing and wonderful and kind and generous and supportive and we're extremely lucky in that regard. And it also, you know, pays the bills, which doesn't hurt either. But uh, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And for me, uh, I've been getting more involved now that my work life has changed and I, I am no longer working a traditional job and, and now concentrating on podcasting and video producing. But uh, up until the last few months, I mostly just showed up, recorded, and sent my file to Marco and then walked away. Um, I do. I have been doing the show notes for the last couple of years. Uh, Marco will tweak them here and there, but generally speaking, I'm the one who puts together the show notes. Uh, and by that, I mean the ones in the released version of the show. All three of us will dump links into the, into the document that we use to, to record the show off of. Um, but Marco does the overwhelming amount of heavy lifting. We have um, a team of people that does ad sales for us, uh, and so we don't have to worry about that, which is wonderful. That's mostly it. I don't know if you have specific questions, I'm happy to field them, but that's kind of the 50,000 foot view. 
<laughs> well, it's just it's just fun, like to to actually be able to talk about this. You know, I, I'm listening to the show, and sometimes I feel like I'm yelling at my phone. When, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just, and you know, you'll fever people will feverishly tweet something at you, and then what they say gets answered like five minutes later. Yeah. And imagine for me, sometimes I'm yelling, although I'm yeah. doing it on mute, you know? <laughs> so, What I do like the most about your show is, is yes, you guys have a great rapport and you're, you're similar in certain ways, but it's the differences that make the most fun in that. Like, for example, when John throws out a reference, you don't get, uh, <laughs> it makes often, for some yeah. of the funnier things. Or, you know, like you mentioned your favorite episodes in that 300 uh, episode one. And one of the ones was uh, the windows of Syracuse County. And that was one of my favorite episodes. I don't think I've laughed as much at an, at a non-comedy podcast than I did during that one. Well, that's very kind of you. And I appreciate it. Yeah. That one, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll set each other up deliberately to kind of mess with each other. And we have a feeling that something at least mildly enjoyable will come from it. But there are occasions that we just back our way into something that is truly hilarious. And in that episode, which I believe is 96 uh, of ATP, which is a couple of years ago now, uh, I was in tears. I was laughing so hard. And that was 100% real and natural. I wish I could tell you that I was good enough at my job that I could have set that up deliberately and made for such an amazing <laughs> thing to come out the other end. But no, that was just pure happenstance. You could say, gentlemen, that it was accidental. Ding! Yes. Oh. Uh, but, uh, I'll get a bell. Yeah, right. I'll be here all night. Um, but no, it, uh, it it was just, it was purely accidental and, and it was one of my favorite moments. And I think that the three of us, I think part of the reason we keep coming back to food so often, not only because we're hyper opinionated about it as, as many other things, but because I think that's the place where we might be most different and that makes for the most amount of yelling, both fun and not so fun. <laughs> and so I think that, that that's why the food topic is the topic that keeps on giving is because there's there's so much so many differences between us that there's a lot of comedy to be had there. Well yeah, I usually tend to side with John with the food because I'm Italian as well. So mm -hmm. you know we have pasta at Thanksgiving as well as a turkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's kind of fun to hear that stuff. And of course the 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 other really great episode was when you spilled water into your wife's lap. Uh, yes, I'm still living that down all these years later. And to be honest, it's deserved. But that laptop is still working. It, uh, it That's is, amazing. It is still, well, I think it got a full logic board replace at one point or another. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the shell of the laptop. It, you know, <laughs> what, what's the the boat from the old like tail? Like the, the I forget. You know, I, I don't remember what it's called, but the one where they, it's from like a, the, the Iliad or the Odyssey or something along those lines, something old. Oh, uh, that's were, a ship of Theseus. Yes, yes. Thank you. I, exactly I say right. that. I say that about my dryer. Yeah, I've yeah, had exactly. to, I've replaced everything in my dryer yep. except the outer shell. Uh, yeah. So at what point is it really the same laptop anymore? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. But no, I, I appreciate the kind words, and it's it's just a lot of fun. And you know, I don't know how long I can ride this train, and and I don't know how long ATP will go. I mean, it could be that one of us will wake up tomorrow and decide we hate the other two, and I have no reason to believe that's going to be the case, but. You never know. And so I'm just trying my darndest to be grateful and thankful and appreciative of the time I've been able to spend doing this show because it has been an incredibly fun and wild ride. And I'm very lucky to be a part of it. So coming back to something you had mentioned earlier is the concept of you recently going from um, uh, working and then podcasting to podcasting becoming 
um, your main gig. And I, I was listening to your interview on uh, Parallel Passion recently, and mm-hmm. I don't know if this is conscious or subconscious, but you had gone into your story about how um, you are now a podcaster and then quickly uh, talked about your dad um, being an IBM for 30 years and mm-hmm. sort of drawing like a generational parallel, be it not at the same time. And it's kind of interesting to see how like this is a shifting workplace that we're living in currently, right? So uh, I've worked remotely, Angelo works remotely sometimes, and I'm kind of curious to get your take on like modernity, employment, passions, and how that sort of like uh, generationally has like shifted sort of. Yeah, it's really wild. Um, I don't remember how much I got into it on Parallel Passion, but uh, you know, my my mom's family was all IBMers. I think I mentioned that on the show, but suffice to say, my mom's family was pretty much all IBMers. Um, my my grandfather, my my mom's dad, got my dad the interview, and then after that, you know, he was on his own. But um, you know, all of them have been my my mom's two brothers and my mom's father were all pretty much lifelong IBMers, and my dad for most of his adult life was an IBMer, and and because of that. There, there's a clear affinity and kind of special place in their hearts and also mine uh, for IBM, even though I'm a devout Apple fan now. And I'm sure if I told my dad that, you know, back 20 years ago, he'd or maybe more than that now, 30 years ago, he'd be pretty upset about it. But, um, but no, I, I think you're right that over time, the idea of work has shifted a lot. It's also a little bit complex for Americans and I think Canadians fall into the same boat. Um, and I hope you don't find that insulting, but you know, Americans work a lot and, and a lot more than most, but not all of my European friends. Uh, and, and because of that, I think we self identify with work quite a bit. And, you know, one of the most common icebreakers here in the States. And again, I presume this is true in Canada is, Hey, what do you do for a living? And I've found that that's a very odd thing to answer now. You know, I used to say, oh, I write software, or maybe I'd get a little more specific. Oh, I write iPhone apps. And then sometimes people would inquire, you know, oh, for whom or, you know, where, whatever the case may be. Uh, but sometimes they'd be like, oh, okay. And now I have like this wide array of things that I can choose to answer. I could say I'm self-employed. I could say I'm a business owner. I could say I produce content for the internet. I could say I'm a podcaster, which now I think some people would understand, but probably wouldn't understand how the crap I could pay the bills with that. <laughs> uh, sometimes I don't, to be honest. Um, and so it's it's an odd thing. And I'm in, in some ways, I'm... I'm I found I'm very sheepish and almost embarrassed by it because on the one hand, it almost feels like it's not a job. On the other hand, it feels like, um, it, it doesn't count if that makes sense. Like, Oh, you're just talking to friends. Like, how can that be a living? Well, you know, we take it pretty seriously and we, we really do work hard at it. I mean, yes, ultimately it is talking to your friends, but there there's work behind it. And so, uh, it's, it's been interesting at, you know, the rare occasion when I meet new people because now I don't have to leave the house anymore. <laughs> that, you know, they, oh, what do you do? Uh, stuff. Yeah. It's, it's very odd, but I think you're right that it's a generational divide between even just my parents and myself where it's, you know, up until the last few months when I went independent, you know, I didn't, I, by, by my own choice, I didn't keep a job for more than four years. And, Again, that was that was 100% my choice. I'm happy to report, but nevertheless, that's a very foreign thing to like my parents even where my dad again was an IBMer for 30 plus years. Yeah. Yeah, see where I work, it's very much uh the old mentality, right? I've been at the same place, not the same job specifically in the same place, sure, but sure. I've been working in in the same university for 17 years now since I was like 23. Oh, wow, and, that's wild. Yeah, and 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 the thing is here uh, Quebec, I feel, is more like European in terms of work. Like I have a 35-hour work week. 
Right. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm, and again, like, you know, you know how, like uh, you always say that you're lucky with what you've been able to do with podcasting and stuff. And I, I feel lucky as well with my, with my employment that I like my job. It gives me the opportunity to do podcasting here on the side. Cause it's not like we make any money off this. It's just all just for fun. And, you know, getting to talk to uh, other podcasters like you, it's, that's one of the things I've taken away the most from this podcasting thing. But in terms of work, yeah, you know, I work in a place where people stay for 30 years and then you get your pension and you get pretty much the same pay for the rest of your life. Uh, yeah, see, that's yeah. that's part of the thing that's that's very difficult. And I think a large part of the reason why, uh, at least here in America, why a long tenure at a specific location doesn't happen anymore is because there used to be pensions. Like my dad does have a pension from IBM and I think he was in the very end uh, or like the last class, so to speak, of people that got pensions. And and even my aunts and uncles, I don't think they got a pension or their pensions were like severely reduced. And so it's very, very rare that you'll find a place here in America outside of certain professions like teaching, for example, uh, yeah. where where you'll where you'll be able to carry a pension. And meanwhile, my my grandfather, my dad's or excuse me, my, mom, my mom's dad, he retired at like 55 or something like that, yeah. which, which is absurd. But he ended up having like a, a sweetheart deal because IBM was looking to get rid of a bunch of people. And it was one of those, hey, if you want to retire, like we'll give you, I don't know if it was a pile of money or I don't know if it was like we double your pension, whatever the details were, you know, it, it, it he had a pension and he had the sweetheart deal on top of it. And so I, I mean, my, my granddad's 82 or something like that now, and I'm 36 and I barely remember him working in my entire life, you know, which is really bananas. Well, I think that Angelo, and you'd agree with this, right? Universities in Canada are treated as like quasi uh, government jobs, right? So I feel like there's a lot of stuff in there in terms of like, um, especially with unions and um, people not wanting to leave and how hard it is to to fire certain people. But I don't think that's necessarily just um, the case. I mean, look, I have unlimited sick days, basically, right? It's, it's like it's crazy stuff like that. It's uh, my wife's a teacher, so like she, uh, her too, she has a pension, and we're we're very lucky in that. Instead of having to save up for retirement, we can save up to go to Disney World every year. Oh <laughs> man, I'm so jealous. Good for you. We actually were just uh, a couple hours ago with some friends that just got back from Disney, and I'm so unbelievably jealous. Oh my gosh, I've I've been since. Well, for real, since 2013, I surprised Aaron for her 30th birthday with a trip to Disney. I told her I'd, I'd printed out uh, uh, the weather for London and the weather for Orlando and didn't tell her which one we were going to. Hmm. And well, and I also didn't tell her which, you know, what the actual location was. I just showed her, you know, the, the, the weather report for the next week and said, pack two bags and I'll pick which one you need. And then when we got to the airport, I said, OK, we're going to Orlando. And uh, and we did a week in, in Disney World for her 30th in, back in uh, 2013. And I am I got the shakes, you guys. I I really need to go back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that sends you the pictures in front of the people mover. Mm-hmm. My favorite. I, I, no joke that if my legacy is random people, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful no, way. No, but I get it. Yeah. But random people sending me pictures in front of the people mover. I am okay with that being my legacy because that is, in my opinion, the best amusement park ride in the world, which is silly because it's the dumbest amusement park ride in the world, but I love it so much. <laughs> it, it's, you know, your description of it being a lazy river is pretty much on a uh, spot on. Yeah, it's a lazy river on the land. It's the best. Yeah, exactly. A couple of months ago, uh, the last time right before Angela had left, we had done a whole episode about both the technology and how it's like evolved as uh, a visitor to uh, the Disney parks. And then also like the weird stuff that uh, like the abandoned parks and the fact that like uh, the Disney world, as you believe. So the one in Florida sits on a ley line, which is supposed to be like an like an, an ancient magical sort of line. Oh, yeah, I did power. not know that. Huh. Yeah. 
Um, and so like since then I've sort of shifted into sort of wanting to go versus not wanting to go before. So I feel like another couple of episodes of this, I feel like I might end up actually really wanting to go. Yeah. You have to be in the right mindset. And a lot of, a lot of people I know once they're adults, they're, they, they, they're kind of sneer at it. Like, Oh God, why would you go to that place for kids? And oh, no. I can, I can understand that perspective, but I agree with what Angela, with Angela's reaction. <laughs> of, oh no, no, there is so much more to Disney world that meets the eye. And you, you can you can make a Disney World experience kind of what you want, especially if you have the luxury of going at an off time of year, you know, like not during the summer, not yeah. when kids, not when American kids are out of school. So, for example, this very week, we're recording this on November 20th. This is Thanksgiving week here in America. I, my understanding is Disney World is a disaster right now because it's yeah. nice and warm down there. A lot of kids have off from school. So everyone goes to Disney. And, you know, if you have the luxury of choosing, say, you know, right after New Year's when I understand it to be a ghost town, you know, the, you can really make you can really make a great disney experience yeah this is when i wish my my wife wasn't a teacher and we yep. were forced to go in the summer so like <laughs> yeah. we've gone uh every year every time we've gone we've gone in july oh this year in august right and this year we we did it made it a trip to boston as well because flying out of boston costs us fifteen hundred dollars less than Oof. flying out of montreal yeah, that's yeah, not so it's worth going to Boston. So yeah, I, and I've always wanted to go to Boston. So yeah, Boston's a good town, and and yeah. the couple times that we've been to Disney, uh, we we went for a honeymoon, which was uh, in late June, and then we went in August, which was Aaron's birthday. And you know, as long as you understand that you're going to be soaking wet for seven days straight, then mm-hmm. it's not so bad. Yeah, I got drenched. <laughs> Uh, but it looks like Disney is in general is looking to expand all of its parks and maybe add a, a new park to its arsenal. Um, so we're going to link uh, to a story in the shows from the New York Times sort of uh, unpacking what Disney's planning over the next, I do believe, four to five years. Yeah. And that that Star Wars thing looks amazing where you're basically in a hotel that doesn't feel like you're in a hotel. It feels like you're in outer space. Uh, I'm curious to see how they're going to pull that off. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I am uh, not the biggest Star Wars fan. Like, I don't actively <laughs> dislike it or anything like that. But, you know, it's good. Yeah, whatever. It's good. <laughs> Which, as a nerd, that's, that's I basically pooped on top of Star Wars by saying yeah. that. But, um, but no, because of that, I, I'm, uh, I'm excited about the Star Wars stuff. And then I started reading into you know, the, the hotels and some of the experiences. And even as a person who's not deeply into star Wars, once I started reading that, I got legitimately excited about the star right? Wars stuff because it yeah. looks so good. Well, well then, so when you go to Hollywood studios right now, and uh, if you're in uh, toy story land, which is finished, uh, when you're on the slinky dog roller coaster, you can actually see them building uh, the future uh, nice. star Wars land. It's really cool. It's like one of the few times where you can see what Disney, uh, Disney world's up to, which is always interesting to me. I like when I'm at Disney world now, like since I've been a couple of times, I'm always looking uh, for the seams in the magic. Mm, like it's, mm-hmm. in, that's super interesting to me. And uh, there's so many times when, you know, speaking of not going uh, as an adult and stuff, there are often times um, as much as my wife and I adore our children, uh, sometimes like, oh, this place would be pretty awesome without the kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we went, uh, when we went for Aaron's thirtieth, that was before we had our son, and I am unbelievably excited at the idea of going back with Declan, and and we also have a little girl now, Michaela. Um, I'm excited. I'm incredibly excited to go back with them, but at the same time, I can tell you that I already am also excited to go back just with Aaron. It's you know the thing with kids. And, and hopefully we're not boring our audience, but they have kids, right? Uh, the thing when you go with kids, it's it's 
part of the fun is seeing them being so excited about it, like seeing my daughter meet her favorite princess and all that stuff. And and my son this year, it's the first time he's like sort of cogent, right? Because the first three times he went, he was like <laughs> nine months old, a year old, and then two years old. So he didn't really know what was going on, which right, was nice because right. he was he was free also, right? So it's, that's the best ah, part. Is yes. like he gets to go for free. Mm-hmm. And this year he wasn't free, but he actually enjoyed himself. He he knew what was going on. He kind of knew the last times he was like fascinated by It's a Small World, but now he actually enjoyed going on different things. And uh, so certain things kind of scared him and he's not a big fan of giant characters, but he did uh, enjoy himself for sure. That's awesome. One of the big things Angel loves to do is to talk about uh, when he goes on trips, how many photos he's taken. And it kind of drives me uh, insane. But I, I, I now know that both of you kind of feel very similarly about archiving and storage. I don't, even before I had kids, I was very particular about never losing a photograph. And oh my goodness, after kids now, I, I feel like I would rather lose a limb than lose my photo archive. Yeah, I, I just bought uh, an, a second Samsung T5, uh, those those external SSDs. And they're both, con- I have two connected to my Mac because I have a 256 gigabyte uh, SSD on my iMac and it wasn't enough to hold all my photos and have everything else on there. So I put them on an external drive and I was not backing up that photo library. I was backing them up basically in my own little filing system on different hard drives. And now I'm just backing up that actual photo library which is it's a good peace of mind to have them both and i i like you also use google photos but google photos is my backup yeah let's see i have an entire copy on the synology which is my network attached storage i have a wrote i have a hard drive that that i move off site that has an entire copy of them i have an entire copy on crash plan and i have an entire copy on google photos so hypothetically i should never lose a photograph you're fine but yeah, I mean, it's just, I th- I don't know if this stems from me having a truly and utterly terrible memory, but I I feel like I live, not vicariously, because that implies I wasn't there, but I, it, to a, I, I don't know how to describe it better, that I, in some ways I live vicariously through my photographs of times that have passed. And so, you know, I can I can have a vague feeling of what it's like to be at Disney, but then I can look at the pictures of when Aaron and I were there and remember, you know, the specific things that we did and in some cases, even the conversations that we had, which is funny because I can barely remember what I had for dinner three hours ago. Uh, and so that's why I take it so seriously. And furthermore, as I've, as I've had kids and have gotten more and more serious about amateur photography, I have, well, I've taken a lot more pictures, which is a blessing and a curse, but I also have a lot more pictures that I'm proud of. And not to say that I'm a particularly great photographer, but, th- but I have more that I, I have more photographs that I'm more proud of than I ever had in the past before I really started to take this stuff seriously. And because of that, I just, I really don't want to lose them. And I know too many people who have, you know, had all of their pictures on one iPhone and nowhere Mm. else. And then the iPhone shatters or goes in the drink. Not that I would know anything about that. And uh, (laughs) next thing you know, next thing you know, they don't have their pictures anymore. And that the thought of that just gives me the the shivers. You know, I, I, I would be I would be utterly devastated. Of all the scary stuff we talk about in the paranormal section of this show, <laughs> the fear of losing my photos yep. is much greater than any man in black or shadow person or yep, whatever. Yep, yep. You know what I mean? Because uh, I know for real that I can lose my pictures. I don't know those other things exist, right? So, yeah, very true. Uh, this is why Brian makes fun of me for having backups upon backup. But my main thing is my iCloud photo drive. Right. And then 
I have the one in Google. I don't pay for Google storage. I just have their free tier. So it's, they're slightly mm-hmm. lower resolution, but not really. They're still fine. Like as a backup to my backup, it's fine. Do you still and keep a hard drive at work? I do. Yeah. It's in my okay. desk in my, my new open office. We recently moved from like, I had my own office to an open office. I had to buy new uh-huh. headphones because- How's that going? The, yeah. Well, the AirPods were not cutting it. Uh, I had to like, <laughs> I had to buy like over the ear monitor, uh, studio monitors. So I, I went to your co-host's handy dandy list of, uh, mm-hmm. of uh, headphones and I, I picked one from that list. So uh, it's, it, it's nice to be able to like block everybody out. And uh, yes, I keep a, uh, keep a copy of my photos and, but that drive has not been updated for a while. So I really Better should update get it, to it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny, Casey, and you talking about wanting to sort of relive memories through photos. I feel, ironically enough, it's because your brain's quote unquote hard drive can only take so much, right? And oh, I feel like so. you'd rather fill it with things that are more um, present, and then like have the luxury of sort of being let's go back and sort of relive things in your own kind of of uh, uh, time, and sort of like take the time to actually sit down and enjoy what you have. Yeah, you know, I noticed yours. The, you use the word present and not useful, which is accurate. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I, I do think you're right, and and certainly for me anyway, uh, I can only keep it so much stuff in my head, and and I think you're right that it's kind of a cue, and as new memories come come onto the queue, older memories tend to fall off. And, you know, I, since we don't have a way to capture smells, you know, they say that smell is the easiest way to remember something. Um, the next best thing I can do is look at a picture and think, oh yeah, I do remember that. And the other thing I've done, uh, if you'll permit me a slight tangent, the other thing I've tr- been trying to do over the last few years, is especially when going on trips, I'll use the uh, iOS app, and there's a Mac app as well, day one. Mm-hmm, I've heard of it, yeah. Which is ostensibly a journaling app. And that's kind of what I use it for. But I don't keep like a daily diary or anything like that. But and, and if you do, I mean, that's totally fine. I'm not trying to snub my nose at it. But what I have gotten into is when I am at an, on a vacation or out and about, I try my darndest to use day one to take quick notes about the things that we're doing. So you can check in kind of Foursquare, I guess it's, uh, what's it called now? Not Foursquare, um, Swarm style or whatever yeah. it is. You know, you can check in into somewhere and the only person that sees it is you. You know, you're not broadcasting that to the internet, but it's really nice to be able to look back on, say, my trip to Montreal. In fact, I wonder if I do have that trip to Montreal on day one. That might've been before I got into it. But, you know, I, I would probably be able to tell you in the span of just a minute, you know, exactly what hotel I was in in Montreal in 2013 if I was doing day one at the time. And that I really like. And so I can also go back and kind of relive my experience and see stupid stuff that you would never like take a picture of. Like I would never take a picture of the specific restaurant I had dinner in on the Thursday of our Disney vacation. But when you take a little note about it in day one, suddenly it's a lot easier. It's it's a lot less effort and it's easier to kind of you know, take that note. And so, right. Uh, I, I really encourage that, you know, if you're interested in it, uh, it's a really great way to kind of relive those memories. I am Angelo's biggest fear. I am a photo nihilist. And I think it, it stems back from, there are no photos of me from the ages of nine to about 13 or 14, apart from like the school photo. Oh, wow. To me, I don't really put as much stock in sort of storing memories as much as, as a lot of other people do, including my fiance. She has a boatload of photos and hard drive and things like that. Whereas I'm more of the living in the present. Maybe I'll remind myself of something later kind of guy, um, which is both like a plus and a minus, I feel. Yeah, I'm enjoying all the memory stuff that uh, now both uh, iCloud Photos does that. And I really like the Google photo memory stuff. And I often find myself just sharing those, especially we go to this, we go on vacation with uh, a couple uh, friends and their family and we love sharing photos among each other. And Mm -hmm. it's always great to see things we've done and how the kids have grown up and all that. It's, it's, It's just, it's just seeing the difference. I was sending pictures to my wife 
of my daughter from like eight years ago. And she looks so much like my son. It's really creepy because she had shorter <laughs> hair. And, it's, it, and But I will tell you, Google Photos can tell them apart as infants. It is amazing, whereas Apple Photos cannot. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, it's very trendy if you're an Apple fan to hate on Google, and it's especially trendy to 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 snub your nose at the idea of Google Photos and giving Google access to all of those memories and to some degree personal data. I mean, I, I try very hard to make sure all of my photos are geotagged, so I have implicitly given Google information of my whereabouts for the last <laughs> yeah. ten years. You know, um, and there, I can see why one would find that very distasteful, but to me. In this particular instance, the juice is worth the squeeze, and and the data that I get out the other end, that when Google can process it and and take a different look at it, that's worth it to me. It may not be worth it to you, but it's worth it to me. Totally worth it to me, too. Yeah, Google Photos is amazing. Now, uh, if you want, you can listen to the most recent episode of ATP, which is 301, where I detail how I think I might be divorcing Google Photos, which is an uninteresting <laughs> thing that we don't need to get into now. But um, but that's not by choice. It's it's by force. And so we'll we'll see what the next few months brings as I, as I reevaluate my photo solution. I refuse to have their app on my Mac. I had, I had tried that uploader thing and it made uh, me crazy. Yeah. So much so that I just basically put them in iCloud photos. And then from my iPhone, since they get pushed to that, I just transfer them from that to my, to my Google, uh, Google photos, even mm, the ones that take mm. my the SLR. Though it's, it's an extra step I wish I didn't have to take. Right. I do feel like, um, although Angela and I uh, prefer to use Apple, they do really well both with photos and especially with um, maps. And I do know that Apple's making uh, quite an effort right now to sort of like uh, redo um, the Maps app. But the Google Maps app has been invaluable to me um, for a number of vacations, actually. So I really, really enjoy um, being an iOS and also being able to use um, that app, which I feel offers a lot of advantages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Google Photos apps on iOS, outside of using material design, which feels a little mm-hmm. weird on an iPhone or or an iPad, other than that, the apps are very good. And they're they're as good as they are on iOS, they're as bad as Angela said on Mac OS, which is really too bad. Well, speaking of the iPad, you just uh adopted an iPad, didn't you? Yeah, you know, it was running down the block and I felt bad for it. And I just thought, you know what, come in, little guy. I'll give you a home. Uh, no, I, uh, through a series of weird and, and wonderful circumstances, I was invited to go to the uh, event in Brooklyn a couple of weeks ago now, actually almost a month ago, uh, and and get to see the release and the reveal of the new iPad Pros. And the, as soon as I set my eyes on them in the little hands-on area, I thought, well, there goes a whole pile of money because I'm going to have to get one of these. And very briefly, my iPad history was I had no interest in the iPad. And then I used my parents' iPad uh, when they were visiting once, realized, oh, this iPad thing's pretty pretty sweet, actually. I should get one. Got an original one, had an iPad, uh, ret- the first Retina iPad, had the first Retina iPad mini had what is still the most recent Retina iPad mini, but it was bought new in 2015 or whenever it was released. Uh, And then I, after in like 2016 or 2017, I kind of fell out of love with the iPad. I felt like I was neutered by it. Uh, iOS really wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. And I got myself what I call a MacBook adorable, which is to say a 12 inch MacBook. And then I fell in love with that. And I felt like, you know, the, the, the shackles were off that I could do whatever I wanted. It was a real computer, not this fake thing. Hmm. And, uh, and I was, and I was happy again. 
until these damn iPads came out. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, I need this in my life once more. Uh, and so I bought a, an 11 inch iPad pro with the smart keyboard folio. I did not buy a pencil. Uh, I got the 256 gig one with cellular and that was literally a day before I went on a uh, cross country trip. Well, cross country in the sense that we flew across the country, uh, trip to California. And I brought both my adorable and my iPad with me and challenged myself to use the adorable as little as possible. And that mostly worked. And having this device that is even more portable than this little tiny iPad, or excuse me, little tiny 12 inch MacBook. And the 12-inch MacBook is by no means big. I always think of it as, as effectively an iPad. Uh, it is actually very freeing and very awesome. And also having you know the cellular connection within it is pretty great as well. And I've really fallen in love with this little guy. I, I've been surprised how much I like it. And And there's not a lot these days that I truly can't do on it. There's some things that will go much quicker on a full-on Mac. But on the same token, and I was I was talking to Mike about this on the as yet released uh, episode of Analog, which we recorded earlier today. There's some things that I even enjoy doing more on the iPad, even if they're not as fast, which is a weird feeling to come to. And the speech that Mike has been making to me for like three years now. But I really have come to like the iPad and, and I'm really falling in love with this uh, this 11 inch iPad Pro, which is which is not entirely surprising given how much I used to love the iPad. But I thought I was pretty much forever done with it. And now it seems eh, maybe I'm coming right back around. I uh, I went from an iPad. I had a first gen iPad mini that uh, my wife was nice enough to buy me for finishing off our basement before our son was born. And uh, I had that and I, you know, I didn't really need anything. It was fine. And then my wife used it, I think in like 2016. And she said, how do you do anything on this? She had an iPad Air 2 Mm -hmm. that she got through work. So it was significantly faster. And last year I picked up a a 12.9 inch iPad Pro with 256 gigs of uh, space. And it was great. I love it. I mean, I would love one of the new ones, but I think it's silly for me to like exchange it at this point. Uh, mm. it, it still does the job and it does pretty much everything I needed to do except podcasting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the iPad's amazing. I use it. I bring it to work, use it for me- meetings. And we were talking about trendy things to say uh, with regards to Apple and Google, but now it seems to be trendy to like either hate on the iPad or prefer the Mac or vice versa. And like, you know, I think, I think it was you the other day who just said, let people like things. Yeah. I, I need to take my own advice in that regard, but yes. I mean, let, let's, in fact, let's talk about bagels some more, shall we? Yeah, uh, sure. But, let's do it. But no, it's true. And, and there's no reason that I can't prefer the Mac or the iPad. But exactly. Let, but, you know, there's no, let's say I, there's no reason I can't prefer the Mac and think the iPad is not for me. And while Mike Hurley, a dear friend of mine, says, no, the Mac is garbage and, and I prefer the iPad. You know, there, there's room for both of those opinions in the world. I don't think Mike says that, though. No, no, he certainly doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, for the sake of discussion. I'm kind of curious, though. Uh, could you see yourself editing your YouTube videos on your iPad in your future? <sighs> Up until external display support came it became a thing a few weeks ago i would say absolutely not even the 13 inch i think is not enough real estate i have yeah. i've done a little bit of editing on my macbook and not only is it nowhere near powerful enough which the ipad does not have that problem but it's just not enough real estate and especially you know i'm looking at a 5k imac right now and there's there's screen for days and and, right. you know, and that's what i'm used to using final cut pro on uh that being said it's funny you mentioned that because earlier today someone was mentioning uh, i don't even remember remember the name of the app do I have oh I do have it open uh, Luma Touch or Luma Fusion by Luma Touch I'm sorry which is uh, I think it was Mike who was telling me about this which is supposedly 
really, really, really good. And I have not looked at this at all. I've just left the tab open to remind myself that I need to look into it. But I, I have heard very good things about it. The other problem, though, is that even leaving the screen real estate aside, I take gigs upon gigs upon gigs of video when I do these car reviews. I think for the last yeah. one that I've released, I had something like a quarter of a terabyte of video because I'm filming. Oh my God. Yeah, because I'm filming at 4K at 60 frames a second just in case I need to slow things right. down. I try to release the videos in 4K if I can. So there's just an immense amount of footage, all of which is living on my network attached storage. So I, I don't think it would be particularly enjoyable to do that on an iPad, but I think it could be done it's just between the 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 source of the files being off the device, between the the lack of real estate, except if I connect an external screen. Uh, I think in that sense it would be tough. Plus, I didn't buy myself a pencil because I'm too cheap, and I, and I think <laughs> fine grain support, or you know, there's only so much you can do with a fat finger, and so uh, I think it would be tough to do you know finer editing without at least a pencil, if not right. you know a pointing device. It, that in the screen estate thing too, I think is really important because of the fact that, like I have a background in video editing and one of my big things is like color correcting. Right. And I, I need a bigger screen, for example, to do those things to make sure they get done. Right. Yeah. I know enough to know that I should be color correcting, but I know absolutely nothing about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's because that's one of the things I feel like it's, it's a big talking point these days about how you can use your iPad to do uh, a, a multitude of AV things. Right. And Angela, I know that yeah. you've tried garage band on your iPad to sort of like mixed success. Yeah. I was really hoping when Apple announced that they were going to be doing this event in a music school in Brooklyn, yeah, that yeah. one of the apps was going to be Logic Pro for the iPad. I would have loved to have seen that. That and Final Cut Pro, when they finally do that, I'm sure they will, because looking at these processors, they have to. People are going to rejoice all over the world that they can finally use Final Cut and Logic on these amazing iPads, because uh, these processors are getting amazing. And uh, we had a question from, so uh, I had mentioned to you before, I was superstitious about sharing uh, your guest appearance on Twitter. So we didn't really solicit any questions, <laughs> but I did, I did mention it to our friends, Tyler and Alex from the RGBA podcast. And Alex was wondering what you think the ETA is on these A-series uh, chips for Macs. And my question was, should they call them M-series uh, chips? Yeah, I hear you. Um, I don't know. We've, we, all three of us on ATP have waffled a lot about this. I feel like my my lizard brain that just likes order thinks that 2020 sounds like a reasonable goal. It's a couple of years away. Well, really, actually, almost one year away at this point. But, um, but you know, it just seems like a nice round number. It seems like it's far enough away that it's it leaves them time to attain it, but close enough that it's not deeply into the future. But it's that's kind of me just you know sticking a wet thumb in the air and feeling the breeze. Um, I don't know. It's it's so hard to say. I'm not even 100% convinced it's going to happen. I do think it's more likely than not. I mean, look, the, the easiest way you can predict the future with Apple is to look at the past, which I know is not a particularly riveting thing to say or earth-shattering thing to say, but people forget that, that Apple is actually more, I don't know if cyclical is the word, but certainly more predictable than you would think. And certainly Apple values controlling the entire stack. And there's limits to that. Like, I don't think they would ever become their own chip fabricator. I think they would always outsource that. I don't think, I don't see them pulling, you know, the stuff that they send to, uh, to China in house, but you know, Foxconn is never going to go away, but at the same token for the things that matter most to them, I think they want to do it in house where they can. And 
certainly the thing that matters most on a Mac these days, in my opinion, is the processor. I think maybe the SSD would be a close second where Apple's been absolutely killing it lately. But the processor is probably the biggest deal. And it seems that they are making far quicker and better strides on the A-series chips that power iOS devices than Intel is doing with their chips. And so at that point, it makes you wonder, at what point do they say enough is enough, Intel? We've got this. You know, just sit sit, your, sit yourself down, Intel. I, I got this coming. <laughs> and I don't know when, but I, I feel like it's got to happen. It's just got to happen. And there's a lot of there's a lot of things you have to think about, right? You know, you have to figure out how to fab a lot more chips than you're already creating. You know, the, the phys- physically creating all these chips. Then you have to worry about you know what about peripherals? You know, Thunderbolt is an Intel technology that was built with Apple. And as we discussed on ATP recently, it does not appear to be licensing cumbered from a financial sense. I mean, it is you do have to license it, I believe, but it, but I think they, that Intel has declared they would do no cost licensing. Um, but you know, you have to support Thunderbolt, probably. Uh, you certainly have to support USB, probably USB C. Um, and you know, how do you make that all work with an with an A series chip in in this in the motherboard that is that has not had to support Thunderbolt? You know, we've we've now crossed the threshold with USB C on iPads, but we've never done Thunderbolt on an iPad. How does that work? You know, is PCI Express really a thing in an iPad today? I'm honestly not sure. And 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 what's the developer story? How do you convince developers to port their apps? And what happens to someone like me who is using an app? Uh, called Moneywell that appears to be mostly abandoned, but is critical to my day-to-day life. You know, what what happens if that app suddenly doesn't work in the future? I mean, I think Apple's answer is going to be tough nuggies, find a new app. But that's, if I'm the wrong kind of person, that would, that would tick me off enough to make me abandon the platform entirely. So what do you do? And how do you bridge the gap? You know, what do you, how do you keep selling Intel computers when it's clear that you're trying to say that the Apple chips are the new hotness? And how do you end of life the Intel computers? You know, there's so much complexity mm-hmm. here. And they've done it before, for sure. I mean, they, they've done it, what, twice before, right? They went to from yeah. 6800 to PowerPCs and then PowerPC to Intel. So it's happened before, but they, they've they done it before with much smaller footprint. You know, they were not the darlings, if you could permit me to say so, they were not the darlings of the computer industry at the time, whereas you could make an argument they are now. And so there's so many moving parts that need to be put in place that I, I am hard-pressed to see how it could happen quicker than 2020. Yeah, post WWDC probably. Too. Yeah, and and even though all of us feel like we see a whole lot of smoke around this issue, none of us have actually seen any flames yet. And I think if we were going to see flames soon, to beat this analogy to death, I think it would be, <laughs> as you said, in WWDC maybe this year, maybe, but certainly WWDC of 2020 is the, is, yeah. is the earliest I think it's realistic to expect to see something about this. I think so too. The, the 2020, like I said, it's a nice round number. That would make it so that people have enough time to think about it. They wouldn't be shocked. Uh, the Intel thing came as sort of a shock in 2005 or 2004. I can't even remember. I had a, I had my, uh, I had just switched to Apple in like 2003 and had a an iBook power PC. It was 933 megahertz uh, G4. It was great. And then I saw these Intel computers coming out. And then my first Intel Mac was an iMac in 2008. So like, I like to keep my computers a long time. Uh, and I don't see myself changing this iMac anytime soon. Even if they switch, uh, I'd probably be due for a change in 2021 maybe. So hopefully things kind of work themselves out, but they often start at the lower end, right? So like 
I would think the first computer to to actually get one of these chips would be the the MacBook and uh, not really the MacBook Air. I think it would be the the adorable, as people like to call it. Yeah, I'm of two minds of this, and I haven't figured out which one is louder. <laughs> but on the one <laughs> side, on the one side, I feel like the MacBook is the obvious answer because it's a kind of it's a very specific machine for, with very specific use cases in mind, and it's the one that could arguably benefit the most from more processing grunt. And in fact, I was talking to Mike about this earlier that one of the things I love about the iPad, well, and also hate about the iPad is that it's shown me how slow my MacBook is. And it is the most Mm. recent MacBook that one can buy, if I'm not mistaken. I bought it uh, about a year and a half ago, and it has not been refreshed uh, in 2018. So it's as fast as you can get for a MacBook adorable. But I, I do things on the iPad and it, and I realize, oh my God, the, the adorable is so much slower than I really gave it credit for. And having, I think previously I thought of it as, oh, well, it's a portable machine. So of course it's slower than my iMac. But now I have this portable machine that also has no fans that is even hmm. smaller, thinner, lighter, faster, stronger, et cetera. And it is, as I said, so much faster that it's really making me kind of get not, I mean, disgusted is way too strong a word, but, but kind of get turned off by my adorable, which is a machine three, you know, three, four weeks ago, I was frigging in love with. So I I think the adorable makes the most sense, but on the other side of the coin, would they just, would they go to the other end of the spectrum and say, Hey, you know, that Mac pro you've been begging for, Mm. well, guess what suckers, this is what we've done to it. I hope you enjoy it. And you know, that's where processing power is, is at a premium. And that, and that, that the, the Mac pro is the thing where, all all bets are off, no holds are barred, and you just want the best of the best of the, that you can get. And so I could see them doing it in the Mac Pro, and it would also explain why it's taken them so friggin' long to put it together. But I think if I were to choose just one today, I think you're right that it would be in the in the adorable. The most exciting thing about it being in the Mac Pro would be John's reaction to it. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. And also the the sticker shock, I think. Oh yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Well, those things are not going to be cheap. Uh, that that's another thing. Like, I think that iPad Pro costs as the the eleven inch costs as much as the twelve point nine inch did last time. That wouldn't mistaken. surprise me. Yeah, this thing all in was like thirteen hundred dollars American or something like that, which is not cheap. And it certainly is more of a computer price tag, not the tablet price tag that I think we were initially trained because didn't they say that it wasn't the original iPad like less than 500 bucks or something like that yeah um, yeah that was the whole thing that was amazingly cheap yeah. for an Apple product back exactly then. right and this thing at 1300 which I mean some of that is my choice I got cellular I got 256 gigs I got the obscenely expensive keyboard folio but nonetheless uh, it's still a lot of money. And, you know, when we're looking at the Surface Go, which is not an Apple Staples comparison, but that thing is like $600 loaded. Suddenly you feel like, man, I have just torched a whole pile of money. And have I, is, was that really necessary? Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's just an interesting time to be a, a fan of computers, right? Because computers are changing their shape. They're changing their brains. They're changing their purpose. They're changing. Everything is changing in a way that I don't think it has since, you know, smartphones were brand new. Yeah. There's the whole thing going around of what's a computer, right? It's exactly. even Apple's talking about it. They, I think they just released an ad uh, talking about how the iPad is a computer. Yeah. And look, you can get a ton done on it. One thing that does bother me is though they want people to use the iPad so much, yet Xcode isn't available. On yeah. It. So people yeah. can't, people like you can't develop on it. It's extremely frustrating. Yeah. I think if I were to wager a guess, 
and this is not again not a unique thought, but I I really believe this one, you know, top to bottom. I really think that this year's WWDC in iOS 13 is going to be real interesting on the iPad. Uh, everything I have, uh, all the all the smoke in the air, all the tea leaves I've looked at, all the palms I've read, uh, if you will, um, all of that says iOS 13 is going to be real interesting, or whatever they call V next is going to be real interesting on the iPad, and I think it's going to. I think it's going to hopefully solve a lot of problems and and take away a lot of these hurdles. Now, does that necessarily mean Xcode on the iPad? Eh, I don't know about that, but certainly it's a lot easier and or possible, I should say, to connect. I guess you could do it with a USB adapter. Anyway, the point is, uh, it's a lot easier to connect an iPhone to an iPad now than it ever was before. And so, and iPads have keyboards, so it's not an entirely far stretch to imagine writing code on an iPad and deploying it to an attached iPhone. Like it, it is feasible. I do think that like there's a, a sort of emerging theme that Angela and I talk about uh, with WWDC next year in, in terms of like Apple uh, taking back control, right? So the idea of moving away from Intel processors to something more in-house. And then also on the content side of things, um, their own content creation service and sort of, you know, that would be the ideal platform in which to launch it this time next year, pretty much. So I feel like that it's sort of like an emerging uh, trend of Apple sort of controlling more of the process throughout, you know, both content, hardware, software. Yeah. Yeah. I think taking back control is a really great summary of it. And I think you're right. And I mean, I don't know. I also, even though I do devoutly believe that iOS 13 is going to be a big deal, uh, I also can't help but wonder if I'm putting all my eggs in that basket unfairly that I'm just kind of, I have confused hopes and dreams with expectations, if that makes sense. And that, Mm -hmm. that maybe I'm expecting too much, but I don't know. I, I just, I really feel like you know, if we be- if we believe the stories that we've heard from varying groups, some of which I think are reliable and some of which are not, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was supposed to be in iOS 12 that got punted to the next year. And I believe those stories to be true. And if that's the case, and if Apple can ship, it's going to be a big deal. Plus, I think it really burns up the developers because they they hear the same stories that we hear. They listen to the same podcasts we do. And when we're all saying, oh, the iPad hardware is amazing, but this software sucks. I mean, if you bet your butt that people who work on iOS, who work on the apps that Apple ships on iOS, that hear that and are probably pretty darn ticked off about it and buy it. They're more excited than anyone to show us whatever's coming. So oh, yeah. I think it, I think it's I think it's gonna happen, but hopefully I won't have to eat my words. Uh, one last item on the docket on the tech side of things for our episode here is um, uh, the idea of comments on the internet. And I, I follow you on Twitter and I'm very amused sometimes with the things that you tend to pull up or comment on. And I'm just wondering, how do you feel like, and I know that you're very active on Twitter. How do you feel like, how do these platforms um, shape uh, both online culture and how we speak to each other? Heck, this episode started with me jokingly taking a hardline stance on bagels. And I think that that has come in no small part, not specifically bagels, but you know, that, that idea of like, you know, this is the thing that is good and everything else is straight up trash. I think that idea has come, I think organically from people at first taking extreme opinions for the joke of it, you know, for the lulls, but then suddenly it became less performance art and true belief. 
and I'm guilty of this as well. And I'm really, really trying really hard to not do that. And, and I think that I like to think that you guys know that when I'm beaten up on Montreal bagels, that it's, it's mostly in jest. I do still think New York bagels are better, but I, I, like I said earlier, I, I really and truly believe that a Montreal bagel is delicious, even though it's not what I think of as a bagel. And, and because of that, I, I've been trying to be less hardline about things. And, you know, another example is I, I've been very devout in my belief that centigrade for ambient air temperatures <laughs> is a barbaric, <laughs> ridiculous way of looking at ambient air temperatures. Anything else in the world, metric is better. Without without exception, metric is better in every other way. But if I'm going outside, I don't care how close I am to the boiling point of water. I don't. I, I want to know whether or not it feels friggin' hot. And a zero to one hundred scale is a pretty good scale to me. So. Well, weather update right now: it's minus six degrees centigrade here uh, where I live. That oh. would be twenty-one degrees Fahrenheit. No, thank you. You know, Canada sounds so great and so amazing, and I want to move there until it becomes winter time, and then I remember why I'm way down here. <laughs> There's four inches of snow outside right now. Yeah, oh, we all, we God. we got very early snowfall this year. So, and I think it's sticking around, which is. Uh, the biggest pain. Uh, Casey, it's funny because I do echo a lot of what you say in terms of like growing up and older. And I don't think this is something that Angela and I have discussed much on the show, but I used to, you know, fight on forums very regularly. Um, and we used to like dox people before doxing was a term. And I took more of a hardline stance on a lot of things uh, throughout my teens, and early twenties. And then I've sort of gained online empathy almost. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good way of putting it title. Uh, gained online <laughs> empathy is, is, is actually a really good way of looking at it. And and I think that's what happens is I think as we all grow up, we we start to be more aware of the effect that our words have. Also, I think when you have any amount of audience, be it a lot, a little, or somewhere in between, I think that changes how you perceive things. Certainly, as I went from nobody before neutral started to somebody that was writing on other people's coattails after neutral to somebody who is my own person, you know, once ATP really got going, over time, I have bec- I have attracted more and more of an audience and that has perks and it has drawbacks. And as I receive some of these hardline comments about how Fahrenheit is utterly barbaric and who, you know, how do you decide, how could you possibly use a scale that seems completely arbitrary? Cause it kind of is, uh, how could you possibly use a scale like that to, to, to cover temperature and, and gosh, I mean, miles are ridiculous feet are preposterous, all of which are true. Um, you know, so <laughs> I have received a lot of these and I've been trying and I haven't been doing a great job, but I'm trying to just let people enjoy the things that they enjoy. And even though I would take a New York bagel, bagel over Montreal bagel, why is it bad that you guys would do the opposite? Like that's okay. And and what I was starting to drive at, and I think I got myself sidetracked was I think at first we all did this jokingly we as like a society or as an online community did this jokingly, but then it became kind of the natural order of things well, maybe not natural, but the accepted order of things is that everyone would take hardline stances about everything and fight about everything always. And, and I think that that's tough and unnecessary and yeah, it can be fun and funny if you're with people who you have a rapport with. Like, I mean, you know, I've never spoken with you guys verbally before this episode, but I I, I mean, I, I feel like we have a rapport even prior to recording where I can say to you, Montreal bagels are garbage. And you'll know that <laughs> I don't really and truly believe that I'm doing that to get a rise out of you. But I, I think it's also tough because when you have an audience, a lot of times people will, will know you and even though I'm somebody else's friend, they're not my friend, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And I hope that doesn't mm-hmm. cr- come across as nasty as it sounds, but no, not at all. 
it, it's just, it's a very one-sided relationship. And so they know, uh, well, I hope that I'm a nice guy and I have a sense of humor and I'll, and I'll understand the joke. But to me, it's just some random a-hole on the internet yelling at me about bagels. And, and, and that kind of ticks me off, especially if it's the wrong moment when I read it and so on and so forth. And so I think we've just forgotten nuance over time and we've forgotten that, that not everything is black and white and that's okay. And again, I, I, I am just as guilty as the next guy and I've been really, really trying to do better about it. And I've also tried to do better about being less negative all the time. Like it's so easy to whine about stuff constantly. And I, I like to think I was never terrible, but I do think that I was too quick to fire off a grumpy tweet about God knows what that really is ultimately unnecessary. And so I've been trying to not only do less tweeting about grumpy and, you know, angry things, but also tweet more about things that I appreciate or that I enjoy or Mm -hmm. where I'm proud of my friends who have done good work. And it's hard because I don't want to just be a megaphone for how awesome my friends are, but I want to be a megaphone for how awesome my friends are, you know? So it's a fine line to walk, but I'm learning as with everyone else. I'm trying to do better as hopefully everyone else is. And it's an adventure that we're all on together, whether we like it or not. Well, I feel like having your podcast analog has been almost like a sort of internet therapy for you when it comes to like Twitter. (laughs) Yes, very much so. Like I've noticed that through that show, you've kind of come to this understanding of what it's like to be a citizen of the internet on Twitter. And especially now that, you know, you you and Mike had that whole thing where you guys were like competing over Twitter followers. (laughs) you you, you, You both have tens of thousands of followers and that makes a big difference. Like, you know, Brian and I don't have a ton of followers and every now and again, we'll put a comment out there and some random person will, will say something dumb. And I can't imagine what it's like to have as many followers as you have and a platform where you're able to speak about stuff. And then, you know, nerds being nerds and being very opinionated will like swoop in and drop in with a dumb comment and never hear from them again just to annoy you. And it's really frustrating. I can't imagine having to deal with that all the time. And I feel like you do a good job of putting things that are positive out there. That's my philosophy of Twitter now. And it's been for a while where if I have nothing nice to say, I don't say anything at all. And if I say, I want to say something nice to somebody, I usually just say it right away because it's something nice and it won't hurt their feelings. Yeah. It's, it's a very double-edged sword having a whole pile of followers. You know, once you cross about a thousand followers, you can start to ask questions and, and within reason expect actual decent answers, which is really cool. And, and as you get ever more followers, you can ask even more esoteric questions. I can't think of a specific (laughs) example. I wish I could, but there's a, a tremendous amount of power having a whole bunch of people who, who read the things that you say or listen to the, the, the things that you say. And it can be very convenient and it can also be very, very frustrating. And it, I have a friend, uh, Jamie, who, who I worked with for a while and he would see me catching up on like my mentions and, and ask me like, how do you deal with that? Like I would be devastated to have to deal with that all day. And it's, it, it, sometimes it's overwhelming and sometimes it's not, but ultimately I'm extremely lucky that as we record this, there are, you know, roughly 30,000 people that want to hang on every stupid pithy thing that I say. And, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and I, and I'm lucky and I try to appreciate that fact, even when some of them are being, you know, jerks. And sometimes yeah. I, sometimes I do better being tolerant and having a thick skin. And sometimes I don't. I feel like the biggest problem though, is just trying to decipher intent when you sort of hit that and you, yes. you're looking at replies. Right. And so I wish Twitter or another platform would create um, a button you could click when you're tweeting at someone and you could either say engage or attack. So because <laughs> the big fallacy is that we, 
we don't know whether or not someone wants us to reply or they just want to be heard. Right. Yeah. And so when I was younger and more naive, I often believed that I can engage these, per- these people online and sort of um, create some kind of dialogue. But I've realized now in the modern age that doesn't really happen all that much. Yeah, it's it's just I think it's it's a combination. You know, nerds got a nerd, and we all yeah. like to be we all like to be you know not counter, but I, I don't know. It's hard to verbalize, but I feel like we all we're all so used to being outcasts that it, we don't know what to do with ourselves when we're part of a group, and and we're used to being so particular about everything. Most you know the stereotypical nerd is anyway, and having strong opinions about things that ultimately don't matter, uh, which is basically the definition of my career at this point. But um, <laughs> but you know it it's just it's hard, and I think that that empathy is really what it all boils down to. Is that I think that when we fire off a tweet to somebody where we make even an innocent joke about how New York bagels suck there's sometimes a lack of empathy about the fact that I don't know who you are, you know, Joe Smith from, from Quebec. You know, I, I have no idea what you're trying to say. I assume you're just being a jerk and, and you're right. Sometimes you do that and you, and you're doing it to be a jerk, but you don't really expect a response. Sometimes you do it and you're mm-hmm. being funny, but you, but the other person doesn't realize it. it's just, it, it's so hard to, to in, infer intent from, uh, you know, 280 characters. And, and I think that, Twitter is one of the most magical, maybe that's a little strong, but one of the most incredible tools that has come into my life and is really, I would, I, I personally attribute Twitter, at least in part to providing me enough of an audience to pay for my family to live based on just, you know, podcasts and, and, and videos and things of that nature. I think in no small part that's because of Twitter and my presence there upon it, but I also can't help but wonder if Twitter just folded up tomorrow, you know, would I be better off? And I don't know. Well, I mean, look, without Twitter, we wouldn't be talking right now. Yeah, that's true. Right? Actually, it's a good way of looking at it. And just the fact that we are chatting and, and you know, recording a podcast for like, we don't have as big an audience as, as you would have regularly. But, you know, I'm hoping you know, hundreds of people will listen to this and, and get your opinions on stuff you you don't normally talk about, which we'll be going to into the next segment. But uh, it's it's just fun to be able to interact with people. And I think most of the, I think every interaction I've ever had with you on Twitter has always been positive and fun. You know, every, every once in a while, you'll get uh, a jerk. But again, like you said, once you pass a certain threshold of followers, it gets worse and worse. Yeah. And I mean, also let's not lose sight of the fact that, you know, I'll speak for myself. I am a relatively well-to-do white dude from America. Like I am pretty much the definition of privilege. Like I cannot fathom what it would be like to not be white or not be a dude or God forbid, both of those things, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I have, I, I feel like I'm doing Twitter and I feel like I'm doing the internet on easy mode, probably life on easy mode if i'm honest but but nevertheless it doesn't mean that everything is relative right and i i can only speak about my own experience and and i and i try to appreciate or or recognize the fact that my experience is on easy mode but but nevertheless you know when i have occasionally tweeted something that a lot of people have been really upset by or occasionally have tweeted something where i didn't actually expect answers and got a whole bunch of people explaining to me maybe even mansplaining to me what the answer is 
it's still frustrating. It doesn't mean that the people are threatening to rape me. Like, you know, they're, yeah. they're not, they're not doxing me or at least not yet. Thank goodness. But you know, everything is relative. And, and because I haven't, I've been lucky enough not to have one of those truly and utterly terrible experiences. It's easy to just get really annoyed by a bunch of people who don't get your joke and think you're actually an idiot, you know? You had that healthcare tweet once that got retweeted by somebody, didn't it? And that yeah. kind of made a bit of a mess. Yeah, I mean, for the most you had part, positive that and bad. negative things, right? Yeah, I mean, my audience trends towards, uh, you know, affluent and liberal, um, you know, Americans more than anything else. But uh, I think it was early this year. Is that right? Yeah, it was early this year. I, I put a post about it uh, that, that I'll give you guys a link if you want to put it in the show notes. But I had tweeted about how. Really, the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare here in America, in a a roundabout way, my tweet basically said, how could you possibly not think this is good? How could you possibly think that the Affordable Care Act is bad? And it got picked up by a couple of people. uh, And the first the the most notable person was Andy Richter, who was uh, Conan's like right hand man for a long time. Conan O'Brien's right hand man. He ended up retweeting it somehow. I have no idea how. And then it really took off after that. And there was a for about, I don't know, it was a few days a week or something like that, that it was relatively difficult to look at my mentions. I mean, as it, as it's, as I sit here now, I'm looking at this tweet from the 12th of January in 2017, it was, it has 15,000 retweets and 25,000 likes, which is with, without a shadow of a doubt, light years more engagement than I've had on anything else I've ever done online. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's it was good and bad. Um, also yeah. had a typo in it, which really drove me nuts. But <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of typos, actually, uh, my most infamous piece of work, I think, is I ended up on the Drudge Report um, maybe oh, ten God. years ago uh, with. Uh, my name spelt wrong because I had attended uh, a press conference with Al Gore and some Lyndon LaRouche supporters had shut up and kind of just booed him off the stage. And so Drudge had picked it up, but they had misspelt my last name. So my greatest kind of achievement uh, it cannot be easily found under my own name, which I would say is probably a blessing all told, but I would also be annoyed by it at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of a last question to sort of cap things off. I'm curious because I have both of you, both of your parents. How do you see this going for your kids in terms of like a, a social ecosystem? Oh boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've thought a lot about that in, one of the things that is interesting about Aaron's line of work before uh, we started having children and, and she stayed, decided to stay home with the kids is she was a high school teacher. And so I would kind of get to live, not, not live vicariously. I would, I would kind of at least get to experience through her eyes, what high schoolers were experiencing. And it's been fascinating. Like as an example, I've noticed in myself feeling a little twang of guilt if I don't like a photo on Instagram that a friend has put up. And, and I don't think that's ever been the case with Mike, but I'll pick on Mike as an example. So Mike puts up a photo of something that he's that he's interested in and excited about. Maybe it's like a pen or something. And I just I don't really care about pens. It doesn't they don't do anything for me. <laughs> but I've, but Interesting. I've, but I've, I, I have felt this pang of guilt. Like, should I give him a give him a heart so he doesn't think I'm a heartless, terrible friend, you know, should I like that image just so he knows, you know, oh yeah, I support you. Yay. And it occurred to me that even me as an old man at 36, you know, um, I, I am feeling that kind of societal social pressure with my friends and I'm an old dude. My understanding, my very limited understanding of, you know, the, the teenagers of the world or the tweens maybe of the world 
is that that Instagram and in, uh, equivalent in other networks, that pressure to be like on the ball with likes and, and comments and whatnot, that it's darn near a full-time job now. And it freaks me out thinking about what it will be like for my children in, you know, 10 to 15 years when they're of the age where this thing is, or whatever the, you know, then equivalent thereof, when, when those things are important and what will they have to do and how will they be able to keep a, a balance between real life and internet life. But the, the only thing that keeps me sane is remembering that when I was a kid, you know, the internet really came to be a thing around about the time of middle or high school for me. And my parents didn't have that when they were middle and high school. And I'm sure they thought it was friggin' bananas that, mm-hmm. you know, we would ever, you know, like I spent time on chat rooms on and off and they were never nefarious. Like it was the most innocent stuff in the world because I was like this most straight edge kid in the world. But, um, you know, to them, that must've been petrifying. Like, who are these people he's mm-hmm. talking to? And this was right around the time when everyone assumed that everyone in a chat room was a 70 year old dude, you know, preying on kids. And so they, <laughs> I'm sure they had uncomfortable feelings with it because they didn't grow up with it, but I like to think I turned out okay. And whatever uncomfortable feelings I have with Declan and Michaela's online presence, I hope I help them navigate it in a healthy and intelligent way. But ultimately it's not my generation. It's not my life to lead. It's theirs. And Mm -hmm. I just have to do as best I can to steer them to make good choices. Brian sent me a a story about a a woman who was kind of upset because one of her kids uh, that she Instagrams, she Instagrams all her children. And one of her kids statistically was not pulling in as many yes. likes as the other kids. Mm-hmm. You saw that? Well, yes, I did. And it's coincidental because, um, Aaron, my wife has followed that. The, the uh, I think it's Bauer power is the name of the blog. And, and, and yeah. the, I forget the, the name of the woman who runs it, but it's something Bauer. Um, and she came upon them because of a different kind of uh, home improvement blog uh, that Aaron actually went to the gentleman. It's it's a couple, and Aaron went to to university with the gentleman that runs it. This is called Young House Love, and so she, through Young House Love, you know, she found Bauer Power, and and Aaron saw that post. It was just a couple of days ago in the morning. Didn't think a thing of it, and then it blew up after yeah. afterwards. And I was telling her, oh, you know, I saw Bauer Power, Bauer Power make make the rounds on like my world, which is very unusual. <laughs> and yeah, mm-hmm. I guess the woman, and I I really do think it was well-intentioned, but it, it, that's the other thing with, you know, the internet and Twitter and whatnot. It's so easy to, to rile up a crowd and get, yeah. and I, again, I'm guilty of this too. I'm trying to be better, but I'm guilty of it too. It's so easy to rile up a crowd and be like, look at this lunatic who thinks her kid isn't, who is, who cares about the fact that her kid doesn't test, you know, as well on, on Instagram as her other kids. How bananas is that? And it's easy to get worked up about it. But uh, from what I understand from Aaron, who has followed this, you know, this family for years, like that is not, there's more to it than, than it would appear okay. on the surface, but it's easy. I mean, I saw that and I was like, are you freaking kidding me with this? Yeah. That's, that's That was my first thought. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. The big thing too, I think is this shifting culture in when you yourself become a brand, right. Then that association and those metrics kind of seep into your life on like yeah. a weird level. Yeah. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's fair. I, I, outside of maybe Twitter followers, I like to th- think that I've mostly kept away from that, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I there was a long period of time, when I really felt like the easiest gauge as to whether or not I'm doing good work outside of my job at the time was whether or not I was getting a fair bit of Twitter followers. And now, mm-hmm. now I, I, I pay less attention to that in no small part because it's mostly petered off, but I don't know. I think it's easy to get wrapped up in it, just like you said, and it's easy to misconstrue self-worth with audience and, it's yeah. a, it's a very easy trap to fall in. That's very hard to claw your way out of. 
And I think that's a whole episode unto itself, actually. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so my two takeaways here are to stay away from mommy blogs and also <laughs> not to treat every episode of Degrassi as like true because my fiance loves watching the newer episodes and it's all about how kids get in trouble with tech. There's like an episode about swatting. So I feel like I'm not going to base that in reality. Yeah. Try not to, Brian. <laughs> it's hard, though. The, those storylines are so captivating, um, even as an adult. So. And uh, with that, let's move on to the paranormal section. Sounds good. What could space be? What could it be made of? What the heck is all those lights out there? Is it just a black curtain with holes in it? I don't know. I'm trying to find out. Double density. Welcome back to Double Density. As always, we're switching gears from tech to the paranormal. So, Angela, the first thing you kind of want to talk about this week is something that's sort of um, uh, like paranormal adjacent, I guess, um, in terms of like how uh, technology is being used or uh, disused or unused, I guess, would be the best way of sort of putting it. Jason Snell had a post about everybody talking about the uh, the movement shortcut on the iPhone and, and, and most of iOS. And it's something I've known about for years, but mainly because it was through 3D Touch. And I just laughed because what, it was two days ago that you texted me saying that you were amazed that you could do this that and is you correct. had no idea it existed. No, not at all. It seems like this, it's like a collective conscious thing that, uh, what is it? The, 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 the Institute for Noetic Science that studies this whole collective, uh, conscious that the world, uh, like we all kind of control each other's minds in a way. And it all kind of comes to being at the same time. And it seems like this is what's happening with this shortcut movement. But uh, I've known about it for years. I'm assuming Casey's known about it as well. Yeah, by 3D Touch. So this yeah. tweet is talking about uh, if you push and hold or click, uh, tap and hold on the space bar, even on a, on a device that does not uh, that does not support pushing kind of through the screen, if you will. Uh, if you click and hold or tap and hold on the space bar, then the entire keyboard becomes effectively a trackpad and you can use that to drag the cursor around and position it exactly uh, with the advantage of having a phone with 3d touch, which is most modern iPhones with the exception of the tenor or the 10 R um, uh, then you can just, <laughs> then you can just mash down anywhere on the keyboard real hard. And, and again, the entire thing becomes a, a kind of a cursor. And I knew about this. I, I'm pretty sure I told Aaron about it at some point. I see her do this every great once in a while. And she's my litmus test for a non nerd. I mean, she's a nerd, but in very, very different ways than me. So I didn't expect everyone knew this, but I also didn't think it was that much of a secret, but yeah, uh, this is a tweet that you guys have found, which is the one I'd seen from Chrissy, uh, Briere Davis, I hope I pronounced that right, where she very, very eloquently uh, put this all in, an, in a screenshot from her phone. And it has 130,000 likes and 56,000 yeah. retweets. So it's crazy. Yeah. It, obviously, not as many people knew about this as I thought. Yeah. And I asked my wife about it and she's like, I think I know about that. Um, the iPad one as well, where you put two fingers on the keyboard and you can get like a little trackpad there, which is something I use all the time, actually. And um, I would I asked my wife, she thinks her colleagues know about this and she's pretty sure they don't. Uh, just as a quick note uh, to both of you, but mostly to Angelo. So uh, something to know about the Institute of Noetic Sciences. It was co-founded by former astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who also believed in remote healing. I don't know if you know about this, but he believed that a teenage remote healer living in Canada was able to help him with his kidney cancer. Uh, huh. So make it that way. Well, and he also is one of the most uh, pro UFO former astronauts um, known to man. So weird. Yeah. He, yeah. 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 It's, it's strange sometimes when uh, people go to space, they, they end up having some sort of revelation, but not the kind that you wish they did. 
No, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but yeah, the noetic science thing uh, was brought up by your favorite author, uh, Brian, Dan Brown. Oh, Dan Brown. Love that man. Love that man in his short chapters and his feeling of, of success when you finish like three of them in a night. I, I can't tell I if you're being it. sarcastic or not, but I freaking love yes, Dan. Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, I, I, look, I like Dan Brown too, and Brian always sort of makes fun of me for it, but Brian's a snooty tooty uh, com studies uh, person, <laughs> so there we go. That's why. I, I don't mind Dan Brown. He's fine. Right. No, I think he's fine too. Yeah, I feel like to some degree he's like the quintessential American author because it's like, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's saccharine. It's easy to digest. The chapters are short. So you feel great about it. Just like you said. Exactly. Um, and, and I mean, as an American, I eat that crap up. You know, I love it, but, <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't ever perceive it as highbrow literature. You no. know, it's just a fun, they're just fun reads generally Perfect speaking. Perfect for so. the beach. Yeah. 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 Here's a question for you then. Um, do you, so Dan Brown writes these books and he bases it on sort of like pseudo reality. Do you read a lot into that? Do you take what he says at face value and then it's true? Uh, yes. ish. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that he's pretty heavy handed with bending reality for lack of a better yeah. way of, yeah. of, of putting yeah. it, you know, uh, I like take uh, Da Vinci Code, which is his most popular book. I, I'm not a particularly religious man. Um, even I knew that a lot of what he was saying was taking liberty with stories or with facts. You know, well, <laughs> taking liberties with facts is a very loaded thing to say in this American climate. But, um, but <laughs> yes. nevertheless, I hope you get the spirit of what I'm trying to say. And and so I I, I don't think I ever really took it as is true as more more than it was inspired by something. Like if I dug into it, I always assumed that there would be a kernel of truth or reality somewhere within, but that he was giving himself a fair bit of creative license with it, with whatever the it may be overall. He he definitely did. We we did an episode about this uh, was it last month or two months ago. Yeah, a little while ago. Uh, and I and I got to use my art history degree. Like I, I have a degree in this stuff, and oh, a lot of the stuff he said. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff he said about uh, art and stuff was is a little wrong, but still, uh, it, it was a fun book. I, I, like I said in that episode, I loved it when I read it and now looking back, I can see the faults in it, but it's still, it's still a fun read. Uh, uh unless you're highbrow like Brian. <laughs> you know, I see how this is Angelo. It's <laughs> my character, uh, uh, Angelo, would you drop a pin? Let me know. Well, no, actually, no, I know exactly where I can find you from like nine you, to five. You've been to on my a, house. Yeah, it's true. I've also been to your place of work. So no, yes. there it is. Well, yeah, uh, a few weeks ago, his, his fiance was in my office cause we work in the same place. Brian doesn't work there anymore, but, uh, she passed by and we took a selfie together and just sent it to Brian and he thought it was the strangest <laughs> thing. It was so bizarre to like, I it was in the middle of the work day and I was just, I was busy with the project and then suddenly I get this like ding on my phone and it's like the two people I talked to the most all in one place that that must have been a little bit creepy yeah <laughs> uh angelo i hate you and this will be the last episode of double dance together <laughs> casey like thanks that. for uh for being a part of the last episode my sorry friend. you guys i ruined everything <laughs> <laughs> um but actually moving on to sort of like the meat and potatoes of what we want to talk about um is something we haven't really tackled on double dance all that much and something that angelo and i sort of talk about on a regular basis and it's the idea of of superstition and sort of like um the idea of like routines and rituals and things like that and how the aid to relax the brain so when when casey confirmed you'd be on this uh it so happened to have been like just after i listened to the episode of analog where he talked about um his superstitions when traveling because uh he had been to new york for the apple event and uh on a side note lucky you got to see lana del rey in person she's one of my favorite artists oh, she's very uh, good yeah uh, and i thought 
hey, Casey's coming on. I think it's going to be great to talk about his travel underwear. <laughs> that's oh god if you haven't heard of that episode of analog that is so random um yeah so yeah to, to briefly recap um i i don't think of myself as an overly superstitious person but i've always i've never been a comfortable flyer and i have both gotten calmer and more neurotic since kids i've gotten calmer in the sense that i don't have to show up 34 hours early to the airport and i i am more comfortable coming in closer to the last minute, which is to say like an hour ahead of time instead of two to three hours ahead of time. Um, but I've also become more neurotic in the sense that there's a lot bigger aftermath if something happens to a plane that I'm on, be it if I'm by myself, be it I'm with, if I'm with Aaron, be it if I'm with all of us, you know, there's, there's a bigger, a bigger price to pay now, now that I have people that depend on me than there were if it was, you know, just when, when it was just me and Aaron. And so because of that, I have a couple of superstitions. Um, when I board the plane, I always touch the the exterior of the plane, the, you know, the hull of the plane on on the right hand side and above the and, and above me as I walk in. Um, I typically, as a nervous twitch, will twist my wedding ring. I'll twist it, uh, you know, either five or seven times, depending on how I feel on the particular day. One direction, then I will do the reverse and spin it five or seven times the other direction. You know, I'll always give my wedding ring a kiss before we take off because I feel like that's as close as I can get to to you know, Aaron and the kids. And then on the return trip, I always wear a specific set of uh, undergarments, uh, which, which if you really want to know, you can listen to that episode of analog where I talk yeah. way too much about it. But, um, so it, I guess you could kind of think of them as like good luck underwear. And because I did it once and, and made the connection of, Oh, you know, I should wear these that remind me of Aaron. Um, when, when I, when I come home to Aaron and then just like that, they became my official returning home to Aaron undergarment. And so I don't lose my junk. Like I'm not out of control if for some reason I forget them or, or if I don't touch the plane on the way out or excuse me on the way in. Uh, but I definitely am way less comfortable if I don't do those couple of rituals and I don't have that with the car really. Um, I don't, I can't think of anything. I'm sure there are other things I'm superstitious about, but sitting here now, I can't really think of anything, but specifically with plane travel, that is that doing those things has eased my nerves enough to make me not completely lose my junk. So two things. Firstly, I think there's a great brand partnership opportunity for you out there somewhere uh, <laughs> with some kind of brand. Uh, secondly, I actually did want to talk about the car because statistically speaking, um, it is more dangerous oh, to yeah. drive a car than to be a plane. But I'm just curious, maybe it's the element of control, right? Like the idea that you are the master in your own car versus you're trusting this man that or a woman that you've never met you may never see, um, in a cockpit that you don't know about. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's like a lot of that going on. I think that's part of it. Um, and clearly if you've seen me drive, I'm even more statistically <laughs> likely to get, <laughs> to get in an accident. Uh, but no, I, I, I think the thing that freaks me out the most about air travel is less the lack of control, which is a thing. I, I, I don't think you're wrong by any means, but the thing that really creeps me out about air travel is that, they, if there is an issue, like a true honest to goodness issue, those have a tendency to be pretty catastrophic. Whereas at the speeds in which I normally drive in the suburbs of Richmond, it is at least mildly likely that I will walk away from a crash. Whereas right. I don't, and maybe I'm wrong. 
I don't perceive it as as likely that I will walk away from a plane incident. So you're right. It is more likely I will get in a car crash than a plane crash. But my mental math says it's more likely that I will die in a plane accident than I will die in a car accident. And that's what freaks me out about it. I I have the same feeling, actually. Uh, like, you know, if something goes wrong in a car, you don't have to land 30,000 feet. Yeah, Just exactly. pull over to the side of the road. Uh, if something goes horribly wrong on an airplane, uh, you're falling a lot. Yeah. <laughs> very far. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. And, and ultimately, like if I, if I turn on my engineer brain and try to be realistic about it, you know, air travel, like, like you said, Brian is extremely, extremely safe in the, in the aggregate, uh, planes are designed to have fail safes for fail safes. And in some cases, you know, fail safes for fail safes for fail safes, you know, the, the redundancy is the name of the game in, in commercial mm-hmm. air travel. And, and obviously, there are a lot of regulations that try to prevent anyone from kind of being cavalier and taking off with a with a fuselage or you know an airplane that that really doesn't belong in the air or doesn't belong with passengers inside of it. So, my engineering brain says it's about the safest thing I can do in the grand scheme of things. But my lizard brain says if if something goes wrong you need to figure out a way to go from 36,000 feet in you know, 400, 500 knots to zero feet in zero knots without just turning into mush. Good luck. Right. Yeah. I also think that people, and I think it's just human nature to assume that you're going to be the outlier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's very true. Uh, and it's kind of funny the, the way that you're describing um, your attitudes and the way that you see it and, you know, rational brain versus lizard brain. I think that like, um, that's sort of the basis for a lot of supernatural belief too. in that like, you know what you are seeing during an encounter, let's say is of a certain way, but then you're trying to sort of connect your head and your heart and it's not necessarily working. I do believe that that is where um, belief, whether it be theistic or, or paranormal does sort of get created. Yeah. I mean, and humans have a tendency to want to explain things. I mean, that's kind of what you just said, right? Is that you need to, you need, you need to explain it away somehow. And and maybe you explain away your reason for being on the planet with religion. Maybe you explain away that weird shooting star you saw as an alien rather than just, you know, something in, in, in astronomy. But we have this innate need to understand or at least come to peace with what we have seen in front of us or experienced in some way. And and I think you're right that sometimes that's turning to religion, sometimes that's turning to the paranormal, sometimes it's turning to science, sometimes it's turning to philosophy. It's any number of different avenues. But one way or another, I think most humans have a need to to, to understand. And I think that's particularly true of you know engineers or oftentimes of nerds in general that we just want to understand why you know or, or if not why then maybe how and because of that it leads us to to sometimes maybe come to understandings that aren't accurate or aren't perfect but they're sufficient and enough to keep us happy yeah i think that's the most important thing is trying to maintain happiness when you're doing something that makes you uncomfortable like flying it's funny my kids have been on planes more often uh, up until now than I ever was like up until now. You know what I mean? Uh, I, my, my parents didn't take us traveling that often. We Never. Yeah. My first flight was at 18. So, okay. No, I mean, I, I went to Italy when I was like two and then 
eight and then 16 or something like that. I can't remember. I went like four times with my parents because we have family there, but that was the only time I would fly. And it so happened that like I had a weird superstition back then. Uh, did you guys ever see the Twilight Zone movie? Yes. No. You I know, didn't. Okay. Well, there's the, there's a whole section of it where uh, John Lith goes on an airplane and there's a gremlin like shredding the, the wing off. And I ended up having a weird superstition that I'd have to watch that before flying which is a very bizarre thing to that watch before you go on an airplane. Weird. Yeah, but it, it made me feel safer that I was going to go on a plane after watching that stupid uh, segment of that of that movie. Well, I mean, it wasn't stupid. It was, it's a decent movie. I don't know. I think it just made me feel happier. Now, because every time I go on an airplane, I have children with me, I don't have time to think about anything because you're worried about <laughs> what's going on with right. the kids. It's like, you know, you travel and you have... Like, the worst is... Uh, We've been to the Dominican once with the kids and once to Cuba. And going into those countries is a lot more complicated than flying into Orlando. Uh, there's a lot of stuff being stamped in your passport. You have to fill out all these forms. You have to hold up your child to the camera so that they can see him. And take. It was really weird. But uh, that was the most stressful part, not flying. Flying was like the relaxing part because I didn't have to worry about my kids that much. They would just fall asleep. That's awesome. It's funny how things change, right? Yeah. It's uh, kids in a way uh, make things less. I was more worried about the kid crying and annoying everybody else on the airplane. Right. And that never happened, which was good. For me, I think the thing that like sort of beat out any sort of like um, anxiety, I guess, about flying and things like that is traveling in and around Canada, January and February, uh, the plane will shake the airbag has dropped down once or twice on me. Like I've, oh, I've sort of like become a quest, like accustomed to this kind of that stuff. I'll spit out my water yeah. because of Casey's reaction. Yeah. Wait, that, so that's I've, really a normal thing. Uh, it, it is for me, unfortunately. Yeah. It's never <laughs> it, happened to me. I used to work for a student newspaper and their conference was always, their national conference was always in January. And so for four or five years straight, I'd be going to like Calgary or Edmonton or Saskatoon or like, you know, kind of fly westward in the middle of like a really bad storm or something. So to me, it's become normalized um, to the point where uh, it has to get real bad for me to start worrying. Wow. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing to be honest. Uh, Yeah. I was (laughs) going to say, do I say lucky you? I know. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, recently, it's mostly been summertime flights, which has been nice. And I don't have to worry about like watching them de-ice the wings slowly but surely and oh, use that weird God. foam and yeah, uh, you, sort of you, you sit spend there and your time about. staring out the window hoping to see a, a UFO of some kind. Well, exactly. Which is what I do anyways, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> Um, so Angela and I have the uh, patented double density uh, scale of paranormal belief. So it goes from one to four. So one being uh, very rational, Carl Sagan, and four being Whitley Strieber, the writer and author. And uh, I think he wrote the screenplay too for Communion, um, which is a story where he gets visited um, by these beings. And we're kind of curious where you find yourself falling. You know, uh, any self-respecting engineer will say, of course, I'm a number, I'm a one, but I, I don't <laughs> think that's true. I, I I think I have enough doubt to probably label myself as like a two. I I do tend toward the rational explanations of things. I do tend to be pretty skeptical of Bigfoot and UFOs and things of that nature. But, but there's enough doubt in me that I, I couldn't confidently say that, that I unequivocally believe that, you know, we're, we're alone in the universe. And maybe that, maybe that does make me a one by, by believing we are not alone <laughs> in the universe, but, um, you know, statistically, I don't think that's possible. And yeah, and, it's and, not. And, <laughs> and so, uh, it's, uh, but in terms of like ghosts and goblins and ghouls and fairies and imps and orcs and things of that nature, I don't know. I, I, I view myself as 
fairly darn rational, but not not complete. Not, I am not with a complete disbelief that that there could be more than meets the eye. It's like a one and a half. Yeah, one and a half or two or something like that. Kind of a follow-up question to that. Um, the idea of, of sentient alien life. Um, and I sort of want to flip the question that we normally ask people sort of on its head. And I'm, I'm kind of curious. Do you think the human race would be good to visit? No. <laughs> uh, Not right now. Also, well, America certainly isn't right now. I can tell you that. Um, I, I, I No, I don't think so. I think that there may have been a flash in the pan, a little window of time where we would have been good. I think maybe in like the 60s when we we got... Obviously, I wasn't alive then, but my perception of the 60s is, or maybe thereabouts, whenever the space race got real interesting, is that we as a as a race got really, really, really curious. And I think then it would have been okay. But now, to quote uh, Dr. Cox from Scrubs, now we're bastard-coded bastards with bastard filling. And because of that, um, I think that we are way too selfish and we are way too mean. And I think that I think it would – if an alien were to visit us, I, I think it would not go well for anyone involved. I think the first thing they'd say is, who's that weird orange guy in the way? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> True. You, who would you pick to like lead the delegation? There's no one really that you'd be like, yep, this is it, guys. Because uh, most of the major world leaders are sociopathic in nature. I just pick Obama, really. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to argue with you. I think, although that being said, I think I think sending a lawyer is not necessarily the right <laughs> answer. I think I, I think some sort of scientist seems to me to be the most appropriate answer to the question. I don't have yeah. a specific name in mind. Uh, maybe Neil deGrasse maybe Tyson. I was about to say yeah. maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson, but uh, uh, some somebody who can approach it scientifically and rationally, I think would probably make the most sense. Um, I don't know. My, my vague recollection of the movie contact was that, it, you know, it was, it was science that, that orchestrated the, the, the meeting of, of the aliens. I've, I have seen right. that movie once forever ago. Uh, and as I explained to you earlier, I don't remember what I had for dinner tonight. So my, my, my recollection <laughs> is extraordinarily vague, but I, I think that makes the most sense to me. And, and if I had to pick a specific human being, it would probably be Neil deGrasse Tyson, but somebody in the scientific community, I think makes the most sense. Well, you met you met Tim Cook, maybe Tim Cook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I feel, Angela, we've had this discussion before, and I think we came up with the consensus of of Tom Hanks would be a very good. Oh yeah, out. I forgot about that. Uh, that's an interesting pick because uh, we went through like sort of like a list of like actors and well known personalities and celebrities, and who would best sort of embody like the positive aspects of the human race. So it's, I feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson would almost be like a little too skeptical and cyn- and, and cynical in mm. dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, would he say though? He's like, I don't believe you're here. Yeah. <laughs> they're standing right in front of him. Do a loop de loop with your UFO, you know, like just, yeah, I right. feel like maybe he would do that a bit. I know Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is a good Paul. Cause I mean, who doesn't yeah. like Tom Hanks? I mean, come on. Yeah. He's the best. So wrapping things up, Casey, where can we find you on the internet? Sure. If you uh, want to laugh at how negative I am on Twitter, you can go to, <laughs> you can go to, uh, at Casey list. That's C A S E Y L I S S. Uh, additionally, you can read my, uh, my blog at caseylist.com. Uh, you can find me on YouTube. Uh, my channel's name is Casey list because I didn't know what I was doing when I named it. Uh, you can also find that at youtube.caseylist.com. Uh, you can listen to my two podcasts at atp.fm and relay.fm slash analog spelled the correct way or smell sp- smelled spelled with the parenthesis <laughs> UE on the end, whichever you prefer. Great. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's strange to 
talk to a voice that I've heard in my head for the last like five years. <laughs> it's weird to have it have you react to what I say. So you've kind of confirmed that voice is sentience then is what you're trying yeah, right, to say. Yeah, okay. before it could right. have been computer generated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody would have known. The greatest trick that Marco ever played was generating me. <laughs> no, the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate it, guys. And uh, if you ever get really, really desperate and bored, then uh, you know where to find me. Thanks for being here. And everyone, you can tune in next week as we charter a boat along the Florida coastline and decide the exact geolocations for Bermuda Triangle 2 colon more triangle. See you folks then. <laughs> See ya. Speaking of, well, sorry about that. The cat's attacking me. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> yeah, we have trouble with cats sometimes.